Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Gwinda Bogle. He's a programmer and a writer. I got tagged in a monstrous thread of Gwinda's on Twitter exploring human nature and cognitive biases and mental models and status games and crowd behavior and stuff. And it's one of the best things that I've read this year. So I just had to bring him on to talk about it. Today, expect to learn how saying ridiculous things can be a test of loyalty why people can be too stupid to know that they're stupid, why million-to-one odds happen eight times a day in New York City, why the bullshit principle is actually a thing, why everyone is seeing racism everywhere, and much more. This is the thing about the internet, man. Like, it's awful, apart from a few times when it's absolutely amazing. Just finding this guy out of nowhere bringing him on the show and having this unbelievable hour and a half conversation talking about all of the stuff that I'm fascinated by. Uh, Thank you to whoever it was that tagged me on Twitter. This leads me quite nicely into the Modern Wisdom Locals community launching this Monday, the 18th of October. It's precisely why I want to create this. It's a place where everyone that listens to the show can get together and talk about episodes, submit ideas for guests, things that they've seen, articles that they want me to comment on or react to on YouTube or on the podcast, suggestions for guests. I can do private live streams. We can talk about all of the stuff that we can't on the normal internet. I'm really, really excited. It also means that you can support the show. If you love it, you can actually help us grow by giving us your support, but you can also access it for free. This will be live on Monday. Check out the Instagram. Check out my Instagram. Uh, I'll have the links on there, or if you're on the mailing list, or if you listen to the intro to Monday's episode with Mr. Daniel Sloss. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, Everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout but now please give it up for gwinda bogle 
tell me your background. How did you come to write long Twitter threads that hundreds of thousands of people see? So my original background is in tech um, and I was working sort of on uh, search algorithms and things like that and um, basically tasked with sort of ensuring that people get directed to the right information. But I sort of started losing interest in that when I realized that the main problems with the internet were not actually caused by algorithms. Uh, they were actually caused by people because algorithms are basically um, just a reflection of human behavior. So once that sort of epiphany came to me, I decided that it would actually be more productive for me to actually understand the core of the problems with the internet. And when I say the problems with the internet, I mean things like misinformation and polarization and things like that. So um, I decided to sort of move away from tech and sort of explore human psychology a little bit more. Um, so I basically started freelance writing and sort of, um, you know, understanding, sort of trying to understand um, psychology and how that sort of uh, integrates with the sort of digital age and how it's caused so many problems and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I've been gradually trying to build up a following on Twitter and uh, it's been working quite well so far. And then hopefully I've got some... Uh, enough people interested that I can actually start to really um, explore this topic um, properly and as a full-time job, it's my hope. I think so, man. The couple of tweet threads that I've seen from you that I got linked by some listeners are, they're monsters. Total, like 50,000 likes on a couple of them and 40 tweet threads long. So I got sent this by one of the people that listens to the show and I just fell in love with it. So I want to go through, I'm going to harass you today and ask for some insights into some of the concepts that you came up with and we'll see how many we get through today. So the first one, first tweet, the law of very large numbers. Given a wide enough data set, any pattern can be observed. A million to one odds happen eight times a day in New York City, population of eight million. The world hasn't become crazier. We're just seeing more of everything. What's that mean? So that's basically the story of Twitter, basically. That, that sort of explains all of Twitter. Um, so... The whole thing about news is that news is only news if it's surprising, if it's interesting. Uh, if it's not interesting, it's not news. So people only share things that are surprising. And, and as a result of that, what happens is that if you've got a feed, a Twitter feed, and people are just sharing things that they find unusual, it gives you a distorted perspective of the world because you're, you're not seeing reality. You're seeing the exception to reality. You're seeing what's surprising, you know. And the cumulative effect of this is that it, it can really sort of send you bonkers. It can send you crazy because you just get a completely um, you know, distorted view of reality. And, um, you know, this this is something that occurs regardless of what your beliefs are. Um, it really, you know, it's, it's a universal experience. So if you're on the left, you're just going to constantly see um, things that would you know, be sort of surprising and sort of interesting and outrageous to the left. So. Um, you'll see, you know, racism and you'll see a lot of um, instances of corporate greed, um, bigotry, you know, transphobia, all that kind of stuff. So that will lead you to believe that the world is more bigoted and more greedy and just more corrupt than it actually is, because you're just seeing these sort of cherry picked examples of the worst of humanity. And the same goes with if you're on the right and, you know, or, you know you're anti-woke and whatever. If you're following um, sort of, you know, libs of tip, TikTok. Great Twitter <laughs> account. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a hilarious account um, and it's very entertaining. 
but if that's all you're following, if it's just those kinds of anti-work accounts, um, then you're going to basically all you're going to see is just, you know, um, Hollywood celebrities acting crazy. And you're going to see these academics, you know, with this kind of critical race theory craziness. Uh, you're just going to see that just over and over again. And it's going to, you know, even if you're not conscious of it, it's going to basically fool your brain into thinking that this is the norm, that, you know, this madness, this basically extremism is going to is the, is the norm, basically. So what that does is that it, it basically creates this sense of threat and it makes you feel that the, basically the whole world is hostile. And this is what drives people further to the extremes because they think, oh, my God, you know, there's basically a woke apocalypse or, oh, my God, you know, racism is everywhere. So this basically causes people to double down on their beliefs and to say, you know, oh, my God, you know, we need to do something about this. And it, it basically makes people militant. Have you ever read 10 Reasons Not to Get Famous by Tim Ferriss? I haven't, no. It's just an article online. It's about half an hour long. And fuck, man, like it's so interesting. And in it, one of the things that he highlights is that most people are shooting for fame. They want to try and get as big of an audience as possible. But what happens when you overshoot fame and you get a 150 million or a 300 million person audience? And I think he said 1%, around about 1% of the population are psychopaths. And he was like, okay, in, a, in an audience of 150 million people, that's a lot of psychopaths. So yeah. his, his point was that when you start to spread the net wide enough, the exceptions start to be able to band together to the point where you have so many um, outliers that they dominate your experience. And I guess this is kind of what you're seeing. You know, for all that I find libs of TikTok kind of, it, it, it's funny and sort of ridiculous. It does irritate me in a way because I know that it's a misrepresentation of what most well-meaning people on the left must have. And mm. it irritates me because I think what the, like uh, outraged at what these people are actually saying. So yeah, I um, it's a difficult one, man. And it's just that limbic hijack race to the bottom of the brainstem that you immediately respond to. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, um, you know, further to what you were saying about sort of, you know, the psychopath thing, you know, it sort of increases the thing, the uh, number of psychopaths. Well, the problem is, is that there's something called negativity bias. I don't know if I've included this in one of my mega threads. I don't think I have. Bonus but round. Yeah, bonus round, yeah. Um, so negativity bias is basically the human tendency to um, remember and to sort of give more focus and attention to negative information rather than positive information. And so if you've got an audience um, like Tim Ferriss, for, for instance, I think he's got 1.5 million followers, probably more than that. Um, if you've got a huge number of followers, um, you know, you can sort of read through your your um, notifications and you'll see a lot of compliments after you tweet something, you know, and you see, oh, you know, this is nice, this is nice. You know, this person loves what I'm writing, that's great. And then suddenly you'll, you'll get that one negative comment and your mind will sort of focus on that negative comment. Even if you've got like, you know, 90, 99% of positive comments, that 1% is going to remain in your mind more than the 99% of comment because you know that negativity is something that you have to react to and this is goes back to our evolutionary history you know it obviously is more important for you to be able to react to negative stimuli than to positive stimuli because negative stimuli constitute an existential threat so you have to react to them a lot more quickly and a lot more harder than you would to a positive stimulus and so as a result of that uh, people even if there's only a small number of psychopaths even if there's a small number of rude people on twitter if you've got a massive following and you see that those small, you know, those small um, numbers, those are going to 
be inflated and you're going to get this kind of distorted perspective and it's going to bring you down and it's going to make you depressed. And this is another problem with, with Twitter is that it kind of, it takes a lot more positivity than negativity to affect you, you know, and there's, because of this disparity, you're always going to feel depressed if you spend too long on Twitter because you're just going to remember the negative things. You're going to remember the negative news stories rather than the positive ones. You're going to remember the negative comments that you get from people rather than the positive ones. And, you know, again, the cumulative effect of this is that it makes you feel depressed and it just kind of brings you down. And it, it just, it's not healthy for your brain because your brain's not designed for this kind of information, you know? And yeah. so the, it's, it's basically, um, it just brings down that's why probably one reason why we have such a depression epidemic you know an anxiety epidemic as well is just because of this sort of the importance of, of validation and, and how that can be easily sort of um you know just obliterated by just one negative comment right next one the peter principle people in a hierarchy such as business or government will be promoted until they suck at their jobs at which point they will remain where they are as a result, the world is filled with people who suck at their jobs. Right, yeah. Well, this one was, is kind of more of a humorous one. I mean, I think it's probably true in, in, in a lot of instances. It's not true in every instance because some people might choose to, to remain where they are. They, they might love that job and they might just want to do it despite the fact that they could do better jobs. You know, I know a few people personally who have actually declined promotions because they, they like where they are currently and they want to do that work rather than a managerial role or whatever uh, but i think it is true um, as a general rule i think um you know it's just this kind of game there's, a, there's this whole hierarchical game where people are always trying to impress the people above them and then you know they'll as, as long as they can do that they will be promoted and they will you know sort of rise in the in the hierarchy but once they can't the investment in that person is too um, big to let them go you can't just fire them because you've trained them, you've, you've built up a relationship with them. So the, it makes sense sort of um, to just keep them where they are, you know, to prevent them from being able to do any more damage by just containing what their responsibilities are, essentially, you know. Um, well, you see this in, um, in sales organizations, right? Someone comes in, they're a good salesperson, they become a good head salesperson or senior salesperson. And then eventually, because humans in a meritocracy within an organization, they naturally want to progress and be promoted because they have this desire for growth. You end up eventually losing a good salesperson and gaining a shitty manager because this person was never built to be a manager. They were a mint salesperson. They don't want to be told that they can't be promoted because they have this natural desire for growth. You can't not promote them because then they're going to leave and go somewhere else and be a good salesperson until they maybe do get to have a shitty manager job position within that. Um, but by promoting them, you lose the person that was good at sales and you gain the person that can't manage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think there's this sort of faulty sort of sense of success that people have, which is that if you're successful at one thing, you can be successful at anything. You know, and um, so somebody who's who's been successful, like, let's say, um, who's basically done really well in engineering or something, um, somebody will think, oh, you know, this guy, because he's so successful in engineering, he must make a great manager. And so they'll promote them to a sort of managerial role. But the thing is, is that the, that person has spent their entire life doing engineering, and that's why they're so good at engineering. So to try to sort of just, you know, assume that just because they're successful as an engineer, they're going to make a great manager. I think this is a bit of a, a you know, sort of a fallacy that, it's quite surprisingly common, um, you know, when I, you know, places that I've worked, I've found that sort of people would just be promoted just purely based on numbers, just, um, you know, sort of their, their statistics sort of as it were, rather than 
do they actually have the skills to succeed in a very sort of uh, very different environment to one that they've been working on? And um, as a result of that, I think there are a lot of people who just aren't really qualified at what they do. And you see it all the time. You just see incompetence all the time, you know, and it's it's the rule rather than the exception. And it's I think that, yeah, the Peter principle does have a, a large part to play in that. I don't think it's the only factor, but I think it's um, it, I do think it's, it's it's certainly one of the factors. Yeah. Next one. Uh, the Golden Hammer. When someone, usually an intellectual who has gained a cultish following for popularizing a concept, becomes so drunk with power, he thinks he can apply that concept to everything. Every mention of this concept should be accompanied by a picture of Nassim Taleb. I think I was a bit mean-spirited when I wrote that. I'd, if I was to write that mega thread again today, I probably wouldn't go so hard on Taleb. Um, I was a little bit, I was thinking of Taleb when I wrote that because um, I, I basically I'd been following him on Twitter and I just noticed that pretty much everything that came across him, you know, every every sort of uh, idea that he was talking about, he would link it back to one of his ideas, which he had written back in the book. So it would either be something about uh, anti-fragility or the Lindy effect or black swans, you know. And yeah, these are these are quite sort of fundamental principles and they do have quite far-reaching implications. But it was pretty obvious to me that what he was doing was he was essentially um, selling his book by just sort of, Make, making his expl his explanations as wide as possible. So, you know, he was basically saying that, you know, if you want to understand A, read my book. If you want to understand B, read my book. If you want to understand C, read my book. He was basically linking everything to his book. And I think that this is something that obviously it's not just Taleb who's guilty of this. He was just the example that I thought of at the time. Um, it's anybody. I found this actually something that's quite common on Twitter. When you see um, somebody who's just written a book and they've got a new concept, you know, they will try to explain everything in terms of that concept. And I, I think half of it is because they actually have spent so long on this idea that it's kind of become an obsession and confirmation bias means that they're going to just, you know, they're going to see any sort of, uh, any, any sort of way that they can make their explanation, the explanation, they'll do that. Um, that that's half of the explanation. I think the other half is that um, it's probably a conscious decision um, to just sell their book, I think, you know. <laughs> I think another bit of it's the in-group, out-group dynamic as well, that by highlighting this is the language of our people, if you understand what I'm talking about, you're one of the initiates. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, you're one of the heretics. Absolutely, yeah. This is uh, something known as shibboleths. And um, I think this is quite common on, on social media as well. People form um, lingo. They form these concepts, these words, which signal to others of the same tribe that they are a member of the in-group and they're called shibboleths and um they are actually a very very, very sort of central part of tribal life um, to have this kind of code uh, you know everybody's got it you know like people on the right for instance use the word based a lot you know um, and stuff like you know and then you've got people on the left who have got their whole you know academic sort of stuff about you know white fragility and all that kind of stuff so everybody's got their own sort of code sort of system which they use to sort of reinforce their in-group uh, status and, you know, sort of, re you know, reinforce these relationships that they have with other tribe members. Um, so, yeah, I think that that could be a part of it as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Brandolini's law, a.k.a. the bullshit asymmetry principle. It takes a lot more energy to refute bullshit than to produce it. Hence, the world is full of unrefuted bullshit. Yeah. Um, I think one of the reasons why social media is just so full of shit, um, to put it, you know, to put it bluntly, 
is because it doesn't really take much time or effort to post something that's wrong. And if you think about the kinds of people who don't think very much about what they post, they're going to be able to post at a much faster rate than people who do think about what they post. Um, so because of that rule, most of Twitter, most of your Twitter timeline, most of your Facebook um, sort of um, you know timeline is going to be composed of people who haven't thought through what they're actually saying. Because obviously they can post at a much faster rate and at a much greater rate than people who think very carefully before they post. And as a result of that, it creates the impression that people are actually stupider than they actually are. Like I'm, I'm not being funny, but when I when I first joined Twitter in, in 2014, one of the first thoughts that I had was, my God, there's a lot of stupid people on this planet. You know, I, I, that was actually one of my thoughts. You know, I just couldn't believe it. I, I'd never been exposed to so much stupidity when I just looked at Twitter for the first time and saw all of these idiotic comments. I just couldn't believe it. And and part of that was because I'd actually been I'd fallen under the illusion of Brandolini's law. Um, I'd basically been given this false impression of people by the over-representation of people who don't think before they post. There are a lot of very smart people out there, but they they sort of um, are very uh, anxious and they tend to really, really think very, very hard before they post. And as a result of that, they don't post very often. And so you don't see their tweets very often. You see the stupid tweets a lot more often than you see the the, un, the, the, the intelligent um, tweets. Have you had a look at the statistics around the percentage of people who contribute the highest volume of social media posts on Twitter? Have you seen this? No, it's no, like no. it's like the Pareto principle on steroids. It's like 2% of Twitter users account for 90% of, wow. the, of the content that gets posted. And um, yeah. that wouldn't surprise yeah. me. I can believe that. I can believe that very easily because, I mean, you know, when I when I first joined Twitter, I sort of just followed anyone and everyone, really. And um, there was just so many of the tweets were just like, oh, I just made a bacon sandwich. It tasted very good. You know, it's lovely. Just stuff like that, you know. And there's there are a small number of people who post stuff like that all the time. Uh, and they just, they're responsible for just filling up Twitter with junk, you know. That's why you have to be very... Um, very discriminatory, I think, on Twitter. You have to be very careful about who you follow. And I think it's a good idea to block as well. I used to be against blocking because I thought it was kind of like, you know, unfair on people because you're kind of dismissing them out of hand. But I've come to the conclusion that there's too many people in this on this earth for you to have any time for nonsense. So I would advise people to just block. If, if, if somebody's posting stuff that's got very low information density, when I say information density, what I mean is... Um, in a single tweet, how much information are they actually giving you? You know, if they're not giving you very much information or if it's irrelevant information, it's a good idea just to block them or mute them. Um, probably mute them if they haven't been rude to you. I usually only block people who are rude to me, um, but I mute people quite often because I feel that, um, you know, it's what they're doing is they're muscling out other people on your timeline who have more thoughtful thoughts. So, you know, it, it's like, it's, it's, it's very important, I think, to do this because it's the difference between Twitter being a hell site and Twitter being like a digital Disneyland, basically, uh, it's the, that's the difference. You know, if you're just very careful about how you curate, curate your information, um, follow the right accounts, block and mute a lot liberally, then you'll find that Brandolini's law is not so influential on your life anymore because people will be thinking a lot more carefully before they post. And, you know, that will sort of offset the sort of effects of the law. Best thing I ever did was limit myself to... 99 people that i follow that's it yeah 
it's the best thing that I ever did. And Twitter is such a beautiful place for me now. I see articles I'm interested in. I very rarely see retweets of stupid stuff. And I've got in the back of my mind, I've got some sort of little limbic clicker of how many strikes someone's on. And then if it, if within the space of a month, someone annoys me too many times, it's like, all right, well, there we go. There's a slot that's opened up who, I, I don't know who I had to kick off in order to start following you, uh, but whoever it was, unlucky. Right, next one. Uh, the Tocqueville Paradox. Talk, yeah. is, have I pronounced that right? Yeah. Tocqueville Paradox. Tocqueville Paradox. As the living standards in a society rise, the people's expectations of the society rise with it. The rise in expectations eventually surpasses the rise in living standards, inevitably resulting in disaffection and sometimes in populist uprisings. Yeah. So this is a very important one, I think, because this is a very powerful counter argument against um, the people who see racism everywhere, who see, you know, bigotry and all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, there's this whole concept of how on the left, um, how sort of systemic racism has got worse and how, you know, um, basically it's almost if you were to believe what, what is sort of posted, you know, in the New York Times and stuff like that, it would seem like there's an epidemic of racism and misogyny and transphobia and, you know, all these other phobias and isms. Um, but what's actually happened is that our conception of these things has actually widened. So Yeah, that's another one, concept creep. That was yeah, the next, yeah, yeah. The concept links in with, with Tocqueville paradox quite well, quite easily. Um, because they, they're both sort of referring to the same general principle, but in slightly different ways. So I'll probably just do both of them together. So um, so concept creep is basically when uh, your your definition of a, of a certain concept expands when that thing becomes less common. So, for instance, um, misogyny is an interesting one. So the original um, uh, sort of uh, concept of misogyny was that it was sort of like a violent hatred of all women, basically. It was this belief that women were um, uh, inferior and that, you know, um, or it was something to do with sort of that they, they should give over their sexual reproductive rights to, like to men. female or racism almost. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. It was bigotry directed at females. So that was the original um, sort of concept of, of misogyny. But as the world became more enlightened and um, sort of, you know, uh, women's rights were put on parity with men's, and sort of there was more equality, that old sense of the term no longer had much relevance in the West. I mean, it still has a lot of relevance in the East because there's still a lot of that kind of misogyny in the East. But in the West, there's not so much of it anymore. So the the, uh, the Oxford Dictionary actually changed the definition of misogyny. And it became, um, it went from sort of hatred of women to it could be dislike of, of individual women or it could be dislike of particular groups of women. It didn't have to be like, you know, just a, a sort of a blinding hatred of all women. And gradually that that word has been sort of appropriate. Now it's been um, sort of reimagined again by, by the left, by the modern feminist movement. Um, to now it can also basically mean um, it could be hatred of a particular woman. You know, you see this, you see this very often, um, you know, somebody, I mean, Hillary Clinton weaponized this new definition of misogyny very, very cleverly. Um, in the sort of election when she was criticized you know by people she would assume she would basically say that it was because she was a woman she was she was seeking to be the first female president and they didn't want the first female president because they were misogynists and this kind of thing so it was it was politicized and it was basically because of that um 
how this links in with the Tocqueville paradox is that when you expand the definition of a term, that thing becomes more common again. So if misogyny in the traditional sense is decreasing and then you increase the scope of the word misogyny, suddenly the instances of misogyny are going to increase again. So it's going to seem like misogyny is getting worse when in fact it's not actually getting worse. The, the definition of it is expanding. And this applies not just to misogyny or to, to words like racism. I mean, racism is another one. You know, racism orig originally was uh, discriminating against people on the basis of the color of their skin or hating people because of the color of their skin. Now there's all these different types of racism. Now we've got systemic racism, institutional, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, they've expanded the definition of racism to include things like microaggressions and all this other stuff, you know. So the, the, the numbers of absolute instances of racism have actually decreased. But because racism now means so much more than it used to, you can easily find more examples of racism now than you would have been in the past just because of, and you know, this also links in with the law of very large numbers, you know, that you, if you've got a wide enough data set, you can find any number of instances of racism, you can cherry pick them and make it look like it's worse. So this is a paradox because as the world gets better, because of the change in these ideas, it can make it look like the world is actually getting worse. And a lot of people do believe the world is getting worse. And this is not just something that's confined to the left. Um, you know, you've got the neo-reactionaries who are convinced that the world is, is heading to hell and they believe that the world is actually going to just fall apart. Um, you know, so this is quite a common belief. This kind of apocalyptic uh, sort of belief system is, is something that's very common. And it's, I think it is largely a result of the top field paradox because the definitions of problems are, are, widening. Poverty is another one. In absolute terms, poverty has been dwindling. It's been being reduced. I mean, a person living today, the poorest person in the West today is better off than most nobles who are living, you know, in the, in the sort of medieval times, because they've got access to iPhones, even if they're poor, you know, pretty much everybody's got a phone or a laptop and got access to the internet. So in absolute terms, people are richer than they were in those days, you know, people have access to much a wider range of foods now than they used to have. Um, so in absolute terms, we've got much, much better. But there's this thing called relative poverty, which is how the UN um, will measure. That's how it measures poverty. It doesn't measure it in absolute terms. It measures it in relative terms. So relative terms is basically um, how much poorer is the poorest person compared to the richest person? You know, so. Yes, in, if you measure things like that, if you measure poverty via relative poverty, then that's wealth gonna... inequality. I'm not. I'm not convinced that poverty fits that definition, but that's concept creep again, right? Yeah, absolutely, exactly. So that's essentially what what this sort of relative poverty is. Uh, relative poverty is wealth inequality. Um, it's basically the, the gap between the richest and the poorest, and it's not absolute poverty because there used to be absolute poverty, which was you know um, if you're below a certain income per year regardless of how rich the richest person is, then you are in absolute poverty. But now it's, it's done by different um, sort of criteria because, we, because the, the world has just got so much better that you can't really measure things in absolute poverty anymore. So now we're thinking more about wealth inequality. And so the top rule paradox, basically, it, to sum it all up, it makes the world look like it's getting worse when in fact it's actually getting better. And that's a, a big cause of problems. It's an interesting one to think about that when... Rightly, as, as society develops, kind of steel man the side of the Tocquevillians, um, why you would say that that would be a good idea is 
we now have more access to technology. We have more wealth. We have more ability to actually deploy things to improve well-being and happiness and fulfillment and flourishing and blah, blah, blah. Therefore, the level of dexterity and resolution with which we should be looking for problems has to become increasingly fine as well. It's no point saying, oh, well, we've got rid of dysentery and fucking managed to get the MR, the um, measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. Therefore, we fixed all the problems. Said, no, 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 there are more problems to continue going. But you're right that it's not, it's not necessarily about this linear progression. It's about the way that the rules of the game continue to be played that redefine yeah. it. It's, it's impossible to compare progress of today with problems of yesterday when the rule set that was used yesterday and today are now different. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I think, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I believe that wealth inequality is, is generally a bad thing. And I do want to see the people who are at the bottom, you know, lifted up. Absolutely. Um, and I, I don't think that we should be um, content with where we are. I think we should always be looking to improve the, the situation for people, no matter how well we have improved it in the past. But what the top bill paradox, the true sort of um, problem with top bill paradox is not um, that it stops us um, trying to make the world a better place. The problem is, is that it, it creates this sense of pessimism, which can manifest in dangerous ideologies. Um, so, you know, you can have this sort of left leftist sort of view of, for instance, you know, the Black Lives Matter riots um, last year, they caused a lot of damage. Um, and, you know, I can understand why people are angry. I mean, you know, George Floyd should not be killed the way he, he shouldn't have been killed at all. But it was particularly egregious the way he died. And, um, you know, so I can understand what, that it made people angry. But if people had actually looked at the facts, they would see that the violence um, against by the cops against members of the black community has actually decreased massively. And Coleman Hughes is a great writer he, um, on race and stuff. He, he wrote this thing called the racism treadmill, which is that no matter how well race relations uh, become there will always be people who will say that it's not enough and that there needs to be more needs to be done and that it, it's basically it, it's not like that they're saying that um basically that they just need to improve because that would be fine of course race relations need to improve what they're saying is that race relations haven't moved at all basically they will always say that race relations are still as bad as they were in the 1950s or worse or even 1900s when it's self-evidently not true you know <laughs> I mean, there's been huge, huge civil rights um, movements which have, you know, given black people the rights to vote, the the, the rights to uh, go to school um, with white people, you know, and all these things have happened sort of in the past hundred years. And so it's, it's self-evidently false. And yet these people still believe that race relations are either haven't moved at all since those times or that they've actually got worse. And um, this is, you know, it's just... It, it, it is largely due to the top real paradox. People just can't see that these, um, they can't see the, the sort of uh, the advances because they're sort of, they've been fooled by language and they've been fooled by ideas and they've been fooled by sort of a lot of um, ideologuing by the sort of New York Times and, you know, these kinds of publications which are always pushing this sort of narrative that um, the world is getting more racist the racism yeah. treadmill, I like. I, I haven't spent much time watching Coleman Hughes' stuff. I've got John McWhorter on in a couple of weeks, and right. he's, he's got a new book called Woke Racism, uh, which I haven't read yet, but he'll be interesting to speak to. Right, next one. This is one of my favorites because I adore the blog post that this came from, The Toxoplasma of Rage. The ideas that spread most are not those everyone agrees with, but those that divide people most. 
because people see them as causes to attack or defend in order to signal their commitment to a tribe. And this is Scott Alexander from what used to be Slate Scar, Slate Star Codex and is now Astral Codex 10. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great writer. Um, so yeah, this is a, a very important one also. Um, cause then, you know, there's this sort of naive view that some people have, which is that people just want to know what's true. And, um, you know, if you just only give people the truth, then everybody will be enlightened and, uh, you know, the world will be sort of rosy and everything will be uh, ha happily ever after kind of thing. But that's not how the human brain works. The human brain is not actually that interested in truth. Um, what the human brain, I mean, the human brain is interested in, in creating an, uh, a sort of image of reality that is in line with evolution, basically. And uh, part of that evolution, because most of our lives, um, if you look at human, humans have been around for about 200,000 years and for approximately 180,000 of those 200,000 years. So approximately 90% of human evolution has been spent in hunter-gatherer lifestyles in, in tribal societies. And as a result of that, we have tribal mentalities. So we tend to uh, play status games within tribes and we tend to have these kind of internecine um, struggles and um we also sort of are very hostile to people who are not of our tribe and um when it comes to information we often try to use that information in ways that will benefit our tribe or which will benefit our status within that tribe and so this is one of the core things behind um sort of epistemology you know if you've got a, a set of information and you give that information to people they're not going to process it as in, is this true or is this false? They're going to process it largely as, does this hurt or does it help my, my tribe? And this really explains a lot of the sort of polarization that we're seeing um, on the internet and social media specifically, um, because essentially what the culture war is, the culture war is um, a sort of a relic. It's a, a vestige of our tribal struggles. We have essentially sort of re-primitivized technology um, to sort of, you know, because we've basically we've reverted back to this kind of caveman sort of <laughs> tribal ideology um, because of the way that um, Twitter is sort of and, and Facebook and, and stuff are basically sort of arranged, you know. So we form these communities online, which are essentially tribes, and we do not look at things as true or false. We look at them as how is this going to benefit my tribe? How is it not going to benefit my tribe? And from that, from that simple fact, you have polarization, you have misinformation, you have all the big problems that we are facing today as a result of this one thing. You know, people will tend to share information. And I've seen this happen so often that it's just, it, it doesn't even register anymore, where people will know something is not completely accurate, but they'll post it anyway because it either demeans the, the enemy tribe, or it makes their own tribe look good. And I mean, there's there's plenty of words for it. There's one thing called nut picking. Nut picking is when you take the ex most extreme um, sort of examples of the opposing tribe, and then you use that to demonize the entire enemy tribe. So if you if you're on the on the left and you see a and you you want to sort of demonize the right, what you would do is you would go to someone like uh, Stefan Molyneux or um, you know, like a Richard Spencer sort of character, someone who's unpopular with most people, someone who's very, very far right. Um, and so, you know, then then they would say, oh, look, this person is 
know, this person's a racist and and he's a member of this tribe, so they're all racists, you know. And likewise, if you're on the right, lives in TikTok. Mo- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you'll get the most woke person that you can find. You know, somebody who basically thinks that math is racist or something like that. And uh, then you'll say, oh, look, look at this person. You know, they're they're so woke. This this is what the woke believe. They believe that math is racist. And so, you know, it's these the people who post these things. They know that they're just they know what they're doing. They know that this is not a representative example. You know, it's just they're taking an extreme and they're using that to sort of demonize the entire tribe. And, and straw manning is, is basically the same sort of concept, you know, where you, you get you take what somebody said and then you just interpret it in the worst possible way. And you people often do this dishonestly. They don't do it um, sort of unwittingly. A lot of people do this dishonestly. So, you know, somebody says, um, you know, oh, uh, if they have concerns about immigration, for instance, you know, then you'll say, oh, so what you're saying is that you hate all immigrants, you know, you, so you're a racist, you don't like brown people, basically. So they'll take the, the worst interpretation of what somebody has said, and then they'll basically, you know, they'll use that to demonize a tribe. So this is, this basically sums up pretty much 99% of, of the culture war, basically. There's an article by Eric Torenberg that I read a couple of weeks ago, and he talks about status games and some of the idea pathogens that we're sort of seeing at the moment. And one of the things that he highlighted was that some of the crazy ideas that people share from their own tribe, the ones that they know to be false, they're almost commitment devices. So they're seen as commitment devices by their own side. Look, we all kind of know that this thing's a bit mental, but you need to posit your position alongside us as a show of faith. And if you don't, it's a canary in the coal mine that you might not be someone that is aligned with our interests. And that's really, really fucking interesting that this is some sort of like hazing, initiation type fealty ceremony to check whether or not everyone's on side. An absurd ideological belief is actually a form of tribal signaling. Um, It signifies that one's ideology is more important to them than reason itself, than truth, sanity, reason. And to one's allies, this is an oath of sort of unwavering loyalty. Uh, to one's enemies, it is a threat display, basically. So it's it's not always about what's true. You know, it's, it's often about how does this make me look to my tribal um, sort of compatriots and to my enemies, you know. And I think a lot of that is actually it really does explain a lot of the culture war. Um, people are not saying what they think is true. They're thinking, they're saying what is going to sort of favor them to their they're, tribe. They're saying what they think is effective. Yeah. Yeah. All right, next one. Uh, Bulverism. Instead of assessing what a debate opponent has said on its own merits, we assume they're wrong and then try to retroactively justify our assumption, usually by appealing to the person's character or motives, explains 99% of Twitter debates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this also links in with what we were just talking about. I mean, you know, people are not configured for truth and um, they're configured for these tribal games. And um, so it often if you're if you're debating somebody who's of a different tribe, it makes sense to just assume they're wrong um, rather than have to actually do the hard work of actually, you know, analysing. Are they really you know, telling the truth? It's just much easier and much better just, just to assume that they're wrong and then to work your way backward through that. And. I mean, I think everybody's guilty of this. I'm guilty of it myself. You know, sometimes if I'm arguing with somebody that I just know that I'm, I'm going to disagree with, 
I will just, I won't really pay too much attention to what they're saying. I'll just look at the keywords that they're using and then just be like, oh, okay. What, Make you know? a value judgment from there. I'll tell you what's the perfect example of this that you see from the right. As soon as someone criticizes them, they'll go onto their profile and if they've got their pronouns in their bio, they'll just reply with pronouns in bio, case closed. And you're like, well, yeah. that is precisely dealing with the, the person, not the, uh, the argument. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with the format of Twitter as well. I think um, you can't really have a, a decent debate on Twitter. It's just not possible. I've made this comparison where I've said that trying to have a debate on Twitter is like trying to have a sword fight in a phone booth. Um, it's just not possible because you don't have the space. Unwieldy. Have, yeah, it's unwieldy. You don't have the space to really um, to explore ideas. And so um, people will tend to just take shortcuts because they don't want to argue. I mean, it's, it's a laborious thing to actually get into a Twitter argument with somebody. I don't, I don't do it because it's just a waste of time most of the time because you're not going to change their beliefs. They're not going to probably change yours. Yep. And it's just going to result in insults and then just heat rather than light. And, you know, what's the point in it when you could be spending that time doing something more productive? One of my favorite Twitter followers, Adam, tweeted this earlier on. Twitter is too short for specifics. Generalizations have to suffice. Midwits can't abide generalizations. They'll point out every exception and demand you tweet a full thread. Then they refuse yeah. to read the threads. Don't tweet for midwits. They are not your audience. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I have to deal with this all the time. Um, every time I tweet, I have to sort of make a compromise between accuracy and pithiness. Um, and the thing is, is that I like concision. I, I like to just, I like to say witty one-liners, right, on Twitter. But the thing is, is that if you say witty one-liners, you have to omit a lot of context. And the context, the lack of context is where the people are going to be coming up in your mentions and they're going to be accusing you of, you know, lacking context. Of, you know, well, the, best, the best reply to one of those pithy little statements is, well, like, not everyone. And you're like, well, yeah, obviously not everyone. I wasn't trying to be, ex like, exhaustive with this little aphorism that I've come up with that rhymes, so I think it's cute. Like, just... Leave me. Allow it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. Twitter is really just um, is for very, very brief, general maxims about the world. It's, it's not really for anything. It's more an aphorism, any aphorism circle jerk, isn't it? All right. Next, next one. This is one of my favorites. I really want to hear your thoughts on this. Goodhart's law. When a measure becomes a goal, it ceases to become a measure. For example, British colonists tried to control snakes in India. They measured progress by the number of snakes that were killed, offering money for snake corpses. People responded by breeding snakes and killing them. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a very interesting one. Um, so when you have a system and then you try to um, sort of optimize that system by reference to a single metric, what normally happens is that that metric will be gamed. Uh, history has shown that human beings will always game a system if they can do so. It's, it's sort of like part of the human makeup to try to do that. We always try to find loopholes. We always try to, you know, try to get sort of underneath the sort of the fence and try and get, get to the other side. We try, to, we try to always find our way around things. And um, basically, this is why it's, it's a bad idea to try to um, use metrics for anything because they will always be gamed. You can always you can always find a way to manipulate metric um, with anything, you know, like for instance, I mean, this, again, this goes back to what we were talking about with uh, poverty and relative poverty. If you measure things in terms of, of poverty and absolute poverty, 
people will change the, the sort of definition of it or they will um, they will manipulate it in such a way as to um, make it look like something it's not. Um, so, for instance, if you are measuring absolute poverty um, and you are measuring it via salary or by a yearly income, which is how it was measured, what people will do is they will misreport their, their salaries um, because they want their area to be, they want themselves to seem like they're in, in greater poverty than they actually are in order to get more um, help and from people. This is this is a bit of a vague example, but this is one that you can find in, Another, in any... Dude, a, an example that I really love using is um, email capture. So let's say that you're a content creator that wants to start building up your email list and your goal, the outcome that you're looking for is emails. How many emails can I capture? So what you say is this ebook contains a world-winning lottery combination formula that will guarantee to make you one million pounds, blah, blah, blah. And you post it everywhere and you get tons and tons of emails. But when people open the PDF, it's just blank. There's nothing in it. It's like, okay, so you've gamed the outcome. The outcome was get emails. But really, what was the distillation of the outcome? The outcome was get access to people who genuinely want to hear what I have to say in a good faith way that makes them continue to want to hear what I have to say. So yeah. by m optimizing for that particular outcome, you've actually missed off the thing that you were there to get. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it works in so many different ways. I mean, again, you see this on Twitter. Um, you know, if you try to measure a person's uh, credibility via the number of followers that they've got, for instance, you know, um, what happens... Kanye West's get... crushed it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People game the system. I mean, um, what will happen is that people will use underhand tactics to get followers. So what you actually get is you get the most untrustworthy people having the most followers. So it's actually, it's an inversion of the original sort of concept, you know. Um, this happens, I mean, with everything, you know, it's it's basically the sort of, it's the rule rather than the exception. People will always try to game a system and, and, and laws are created in such a way as to try to minimize this. You know, that's why you have all these extra sort of additions added to laws. Whenever, whenever a loophole is found, um, a new sort of law will be uh, sort of, created to basically close that loophole and this is a, it's a constant game between people trying to create the rules for a system and people trying to gain the system that is the essence of sort of civilized society the messiah effect most people don't believe in ideals but people uh, but in people who believe in ideals most people don't believe in ideals but in people who believe in ideals hence why successful religions tend to have human prophets or messiahs and why when a demagogue changes his beliefs the beliefs of his followers often change accordingly. Yeah. So this one, I wasn't really sure about including this one because this is completely my own invention. Uh, <laughs> that, that's what basically sort of um, separates this one from the others. But because I included one of my own from the first thread, I thought, okay, I'll include one of my own in, into this thread. It's still a nascent one, which is why the Messiah, the Messiah um, effect is not a great name. I just sort of spur, spur of the known moment name. But um, it's something that I do feel is generally true. Uh, I don't think it's true in every instance again, but it's it's something that I feel is a general truth. And this is from my observations of, of people. And I think um, generally, if, if you look at people um, when they, during election time, what they will normally do is that they, they will normally express um, sort of their sentiments towards a certain person, a certain politician, rather than towards an ideology. Um, if you ask people, you know, for instance, if you look at Donald Trump, for instance, if you ask a Trump supporter what they like about Trump's policies, 
most of them wouldn't really be able to give you a, a very good sort of overview of, of his policies. They would generally just say that I like him him because I think he tells it like it is. You know, he doesn't care about what the establishment thinks. Um, he just, you know, he just basically does what he want, wants to do. He's independent and all this kind of stuff. So they would generally fire off the qualities of the person rather than the policies that he espouses. And I think that one of the reasons for this is that um, policies are quite hard to understand. And they take a lot of uh, sort of time to really get to grips with. You have, in order to understand Trump's policies, you need to understand how economics works. You need to understand how the political system works. You need to understand how um, business and corporations and things like that work. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things you have to understand in order just to understand Trump's policies. Whereas if you look at Trump himself, he's quite easy to read. You just all you've got to do is just watch him on TV. And you can see aspects of his personality very, very quickly. You don't need to have any other knowledge. So this is so it's a shortcut, basically. It's a shortcut. You, you, we trust people rather than ideas. And um, it, it makes it makes it much easier on our brain because then we can just we can just delegate all the responsibility to that person rather than have to think for ourselves. It's like they're a distillation of what they represent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, we tend to think of human beings in terms of archetypes, I think, and when we see somebody, we think of what they represent um, as a symbol. We see people as symbols in a sense, you know, and for a lot of people, you know, Trump symbolized um, sort of this kind of anti-establishment um, sort of independence, basically. He was essentially like a wrecking ball that is going to sort of, you know, just tear apart the, the sort of polite society sort of, you know, that, that governed before him. And then obviously to people who like, who don't like Trump, um, he's just this, you know, crude, sort of buffoon who is just an idiot basically doesn't really know anything and he's a pathological liar and that was basically that was for them that was sufficient for him do you know that. why another reason i think this might be the case and perhaps it's a weakness or a vulnerability of the 21st century i don't know many people that genuinely love a thing i know people that love people but i don't know many people that are actually really passionate so if you ask someone dude what do you really what do you really care about what are you really passionate about? What do you love in life? And they so should their family, wouldn't they? Correct. Yeah, they don't tend to say a thing. So when you see someone who is outright caring, this is from Eliezer Yukowski. Actually, he highlighted that most people take the piss out of the rationalist movement, not because they're taking the piss out of the rationalist movement, but because not many people love anything as much as rationalists love the rationalist movement. And he says, yeah. it's just an, uh, an outlier effect to see people that care a lot about a thing. And when you finally do, I think the presumption from Midwits is they know something. No one would be this bought into any idea if there wasn't tons and tons and tons of virtue behind it, because I'm not, I think I'm smart and I'm not bought into anything as much as this guy. So I'm a, I'm a put my colors onto this person's flagpole. I'm a hold on to those take uh, coattails because that's yeah. the person that's going to carry us forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We generally do have more of an affinity to people than to ideas or to things. Um, and I think, I think part of it is also the same reason why we like watching uh, Hollywood actors, you know, play parts and stuff. It's that we we get the archetypes from these people. Um, you know, we basically we see the way that a certain person behaves, and if we like the way that they behave, we try to emulate them. We see them as a model for our own behaviour, and through that, you know, we, we sort of um, it's like a way that we kind of try to improve ourselves. 
by emulating other people. And if we see somebody that we like, we think, oh, okay, I'll be more like this person. You know, you can't really emulate an idea. You can't emulate a thing, but you can emulate a person. And because we are sort of mimetic human beings, you know, we, we tend to learn by copying others. Um, it, it's only natural that we're going to sort of migrate and na- sort of, you know, navigate towards um, to people rather than towards ideas. Reactance theory. When someone is restricted from expressing a point of view or pressured to adopt a different point of view, they usually react by believing their original point of view even more. And then you did an article about why the cure, the best cure for fake news is more fake news as well, which is related to this, I think. Yeah, reactance theory is one of the key arguments, in my view, against um, censorship. Because what history has shown, and by history I mean just the past couple of years, um, what's that sh- what that has shown is that if you try to stop people from believing something, they're going to dig their heels in harder. Because Dostoevsky actually made this point, you know, long, long ago, where he basically said that um, what people want is not truth. What people want is they want to exercise their free will. They want to they want to basically exercise their free will. And if that means going against reason, they will choose freedom over reason. So. And he said this in a book called Notes, Notes, in the, Notes from the Underground. Um, it's a pretty good book. Um, and basically, this is the idea behind reactance theory, which is that if you tell people they can't do something, they're going to feel like they're under threat. They're going to feel that their freedom is being um, sort of reined in and, and they, they want to exercise that freedom uh, in order to sort of feel that they're not, in order to sort of assuage this feeling of claustrophobia. And the way that they do that is by believing what they're believing even harder and reacting even more against, you know, what, what is trying to sort of stifle them. Um, it's almost like if you look at the sort of the story of the Garden of Eden, when, um, you know, God tells Adam and Eve that they can't eat from the apple. And that makes them even more curious about the apple. And they're like, OK, he told us not to eat the apple. Why, why didn't he do it? Now I really want to eat the apple, you know. So they, they, they become even more sort of adamant to eat the apple. So it's, this is a very sort of fundamental idea. And it's one that um, you see all the time. You know, if you if you look at the way that censorship works now, I mean, most of the censorship um, that occurs is, is usually targeting, um, you know, people who are pushing what are regarded as conspiracy theories, things like QAnon, um, the anti-vax, anti-vaxxers and, and those kinds of people. And um, what these people will generally do when they when they see their their posts being deleted from Twitter um, is they're not going to say oh okay right they deleted it so that means it's wrong so I'm not going to believe that anymore they're going to they're going to do the exact opposite they're going to say okay these guys don't want the truth to come out so they're they're basically they're censoring us because they are afraid of what we have to say so that means that we're right you know that's basically that validates what we're trying to say because if what we were saying wasn't uh, dangerous if it wasn't true they wouldn't bother. Um, you know, they would just point out why we were wrong. They wouldn't bother trying to censor, uh, you know, us. So it basically it's counterproductive. And you see it with um, what happened with Parley. You know, Parley, the, um, the social media app. I think it's pronounced Parley. Parley. Yeah, it's, it's spelled Parler, but I think it's pronounced Parley. At least that's oh, what my own ad. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, I only knew this... Uh, and, I only found this out yesterday, in fact. Or it's actually, called, it's called fucking nothing now because God knows where it is. <laughs> well, it, well, it's back online. It's actually back online again now. Yeah, it's on a different server. But what happened, um, so I'll just uh, sort of 
quickly, briefly um, sort of uh, delineate what happened. So um, after the, the January 6th capital riot, uh, there was a lot of pressure put on the tech giants by, um, by the Biden administration uh, to essentially, um, you know, uh, rein in these kinds of uh, QAnon conspiracy theories. And um, basically what uh, Amazon did is Amazon figured that one of the uh, uh, one of the websites using its platform, its um, its web server, uh, this social media site called Parley, uh, was basically a key to um, organizing the riots. So they essentially deleted the website from their platform. And their, their, in their view, this was a good thing because this would ensure that people wouldn't be able to coordinate any further um, sort of riots. But it actually had no effect because everybody just went to alternate um, uh, platforms, uh, platforms such as Gab, and um, they basically just did what they were doing before. But now they were extra angry because now they, they thought this is actually a confirmation of everything that we have been saying. That they have actually, you know, they've tried to silence us. They've tried to silence us en masse. And so this is clear that there's some kind of conspiracy. And this is the thing with conspiracy theories is that if you try to conspire against the conspiracy theory, it becomes more evidence of conspiracy, you know? <laughs> and that's what essentially is, is, is happening with these kind of, with censorship. It appears to the, to the conspiracy theorists that censorship is a conspiracy. It, that it's part of the conspiracy, essentially. In that sense, conspiracy theories are anti-fragile. You cannot, um, you cannot um, defeat a conspiracy theory by conspiracy because that just becomes part of the conspiracy of, that they believe in. So you know, it, it sounds a bit sort of obvious, but it, this is something that a lot of people who work for these, um, uh, these, you know, these sort of fact-checking organizations and these Silicon Valley uh, sort of uh, censors a lot of these people don't really realize this and this is actually one of the problems one of the problems that i see with this partially or a counterpoint to it is that taking out individual uh speakers that hold keystone positions can be effective so i know that alex jones has a particularly large audience but his audience isn't going to grow like the mm. only way that infowars.com now increases in size is by word of mouth he can't advertise. He's not got access on social media. You know, Donald Trump, now when you see him on the internet, you're like, oh, look, it's Donald Trump, as opposed to, oh, look, it's Donald Trump. Like, it's it's a surprise rather than something that's obvious. And the example that I use for this is Milo Yiannopoulos. Like, Milo got totally unpersoned from the internet. Yeah. And where the I fuck think- has he got? Now, he may be uh, an easy example because he's just gone mental. Um, yeah. But in I some situations, can- it might work. Yeah, I, I think with Milo, it was a very peculiar case because he didn't just get cancelled by the establishment. He actually got cancelled by his own peers. He got cancelled by the right. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, he, he did the unthinkable. You know, he, he basically tried to create an excuse for pedophilia. And um, so obviously, I don't think anybody could recover from that. Um, no matter how far to the right you are, no matter how pro-free speech you are, you know, you're not yeah. going to recover Richard Spence is not coming to save you there, no. Exactly, exactly. So um, I think that was a slightly different, but I understand what you're saying. I, th- I do think that it can work sometimes. And I do, I think your, your example of Alex Jones is a particularly important one because, I mean, I got a lot of criticism for writing a, a Quillet article in which, although I, I, you know, I reiterated that I'm, I'm basically pro-free speech, I said that um, it was actually, it, it, that Alex Jones was a threat to free speech um, because, and the reason for that, 
is because what he was doing is he was essentially um, he was accusing people of being child molesters with no evidence. And this guy has got millions of followers and a lot of those followers have got guns and they don't take kindly to hearing about paedophiles in their vicinity. And this obviously manifested with um, Planet Ping Pong being shot up. You know, luckily nobody was killed. But, you know, when you've got a guy who's create, just basically creating these sort of conspiracy theories and accusing random innocent people of being paedophiles, that's actually pretty bad because that creates um, violence in the real world. And that's not good because that intimidates people. It prevents people from wanting to speak out against Alex Jones, because if they do, if they if they say something against Alex Jones, they might be sort of, you know, assumed to be paedophiles, too. And then people come after them. So I felt that Alex Jones was actually creating it, although he always talks about freedom of speech and all this stuff. I felt that his actions in that respect were actually um, detrimental to freedom of speech. But now the thing is, yes, Alex Jones was he was taken off Twitter and it had a small effect. He had a very small effect, not a huge one, um, because, you know, he's still going viral. He went viral very recently on, on YouTube, despite being banned from YouTube. He went viral on Twitter despite being banned from Twitter. You know, so it doesn't it doesn't actually have a massive effect. It does have a small effect. But the thing is, is that this is all going to come to an end very soon. Um, it's no longer going to be possible for people to be cancelled um, by the establishment within the next couple of years. Web 3.0 decentralization. Bingo. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Um, so we've got Web 3 coming along. And um, because that works on the blockchain, um, primarily on, on Ethereum, it's, it's, it, there's, no, um, there's no regulatory body. There's no sort of centralized um, node in that network. So, so nothing has to, there's no middleman, basically. Nobody has to get their information uh, going through a router in order to get it to somebody else. It just, it goes directly from one peer to another. And because of that, um, the old systems are not going to work um, very well at, at sort of regulating pe what people can and can't say. Um, you know, you've got, like, for, for instance, you know, in, in the Web2 system, you've got things like Patreon. Patreon can take your livelihood away from you um, if it thinks that you've said something that it doesn't like. Because in order to get payments, you have to go through Patreon. You can't just get payments directly from your from your uh, users, at least you couldn't um, until Web3. So, um, you know, that was one way that they would leverage um, their their power against people in, in order to stifle speech. Gatekeeping. Another, yeah, yeah. And another way was like Facebook would be, you know, they could they could just completely delete your account uh, because your your entire um, sort of online personality is dependent on, on Facebook's platform. So you can't really, um, you know, if you if you want to. Uh, continue to have business ties if you want to continue to um, you know have relationships online you have to do what facebook tells you to but this is all going to come to an end i mean for most people not for everybody but it's going to come to an end for a large proportion of people um with web3 because with web3 you're going to have um all of this payments processing all of this kind of stuff it's all going to be done on the blockchain and so um because it's trustless because it's permissionless um it's it's there's no no single person or no single entity or no single organization can um, have the, has the leverage to stop you from saying what you want. And that's a great thing. But the thing is, is not everybody is going to be able to use Web3 because it's going to require, I think, at least for the foreseeable future, it's going to use, it's going to require a little bit of knowledge of blockchains and things like that. So um, I'm a bit worried, actually, um, with the way that things are currently going with misinformation and censorship, because 
um, there's actually there's going to be the older generations like the boomers and stuff who are going to continue to use Web 2. And then there's going to be the younger, more tech savvy people who are going to use Web 3. And um, so the people who are using Web 2, they're going to still be restrained by these systems. And as a result of that, there's going to be a kind of disparity um, between these two classes. I mean, one of the reasons, uh, you know, there are plenty of ethical arguments against censorship, um, and I'm sure your your viewers have probably heard them all already, so I won't go into them. But there are also functional arguments against censorship, and um, there are three. There are in fact three three functional arguments against censorship. Um, the first one is that censorship doesn't really work because fact checkers are not very good at their jobs. Um, pretty much all the fact checkers that work in Silicon Valley, they have to do something, they have to basically, um, they have to be accredited by something called the International Fact Checking Network, which runs out of the Pointers Institute in Florida. And this is a very liberal organization, like most of its kind, you know, most organizations of its kind. It's quite, uh, it's very heavily liberal. In fact, it works very closely with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which you might know um, has a tendency to just call everybody far right. I mean, it, it was sued by Majid Nawaz um, for calling him far right, and it was forced to pay him $3.5 million uh, and apologize publicly for, for that. You know, So, I mean, these guys, these guys are just have a tendency to just dismiss anything that doesn't agree with them as far right. And these are the people who compiled a database for the International Fact Checking Network of fake news websites for the fact checkers to use. Uh, this database had to be taken down after it was revealed that it consisted pretty much exclusively of conservative news websites. And it was written by uh, a podcast producer for the Southern Poverty Law Center. So um, so it's pretty it's pretty, pretty messed up system. Um, all of these people, basically, you know, these people are the guys who work at Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley's fact checkers are overwhelmingly uh, ultra liberal. They're very liberal. They are they, they regard anything to the right as fake news. They don't fact check the left very often. Um, so it's it's very, got a very strong ideological slant. And because of that, you get the, you see them getting things wrong. Like, for instance, the lab, lab leak hypothesis. They completely got that wrong. They thought it was a conspiracy theory. It's very clear that there's more evidence now for a lab leak hypothesis than there is for a natural origins hypothesis. And this they got this wrong because they have this liberal mindset. They assume that Donald Trump was racist and anybody who, who believed in the lab leak hypothesis was racist, which makes no sense because the alternative explanation, which is that it came from Chinese dietary habits, is more racist. That's a lot more racist than believing it came from a lab. And yet they somehow managed to, because Trump said it, it was by virtue of that it was racist. So that's the first problem for the censorship is that you can't actually determine what's fake news or not because it's very, very heavily ideological. Um, the second problem with uh, it is that it interferes with our natural adaptive processes. So you can't uh, get rid of all the misinformation in the world. You can only get rid of a small proportion of it and some of the time. But what you're doing is you're making people reliant on you to tell you what is true and what is false. When you, when you, when you choose what people can and can't see, and when you put these kind of nutritional labels on on posts to say, oh, this has been fact check and proven to be false, what you're doing is you're you're not allowing people to you know if you're not exposing people to lies, then you're not giving them the experience that they need in order to work out what's true and what's false for themselves. You're basically spoon feeding them what's true and what's false, and so you're making people reliant on your system to tell you to tell them what is true and what is false. 
And that is a bad thing because if you do that over a long enough period of time, eventually people are going to grow dependent on that. They're going to grow dependent on organizations like Facebook to tell them what is true and what is false. And that's very, very dangerous. You, you know, people should always try to work out for themselves what is true and what is false. So that's the second problem with censorship. And then obviously the third problem is that Web3 is going to um, create this division. It's going to split the web in two, basically, where you're going to have the old Web2 users who are being spoon-fed. Uh, they're, you know, they're going to be completely reliant on these centralized structures to tell them what's true. And then you're going to have the Web3 people who are going to be learning for themselves what's true and what's false. And this is going to, I mean, this might be a bit of a you know crazy thing to say, but you might know about the story, um, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, and you've got uh, the, the Morlocks and the Eloy. So, so basically, in this story, this guy goes into the far future. And in, in the far future, um, the Morlocks, basically human beings, divide, they, they divide into two different subspecies. Um, the, you've got the Eloy, who basically live lives of luxury. And they have every, they basically, they don't have to worry about anything. And they basically have everything pampered and they have everything done for them. And as a result of that, they grow very, very stupid. They, they never have to use their brains, so their, their brains atrophy. They never have to use their bodies, so their bodies atrophy. And so they become very weak and very stupid and very naive and, and sort of, you know, they believe the best in everything. And then underground, you have the Morlocks who do all the work. They do all the toil, all the industrial toil. They live lives of hardship. And as a result of that, they become very sort of their, their brains overdevelop and their, their muscles overdevelop. And they basically become the opposite of the Eloy. And so, you know, in the end, I mean, you know, it's sort of implied that the Eloy will be destroyed by the Morlocks. Um, I don't think that that, that, that would, go, it would go quite so far, but essentially what would happen if we if we retain this kind of uh, centralized structure on top of the decentralized structure, what's going to happen is, is people will be divided into two and you'll have these kind of people who are using Web 2 who will be kind of Eloy and then you have people who are using Web 3 who will become kind of Morlocks. So the people who are using Web 2 will be spoon fed by these organizations you know, they will essentially brainwash them tell them what's true and what's false and then you'll have people who are sort of using stuff themselves you know finding out things for themselves and they will have an advantage over the people who are using the, the web too so it's it's a bit of a dangerous situation um, when you try to regulate what people can and can't say because in the long term it's going to create disparities um, people, you know, you're going to create people who are completely reliant on others to tell them what's true and what's false. You're creating an entire class of people who are essentially sheep, you know. You get and a Matthew principle with this as well, right? You're going to get to the people who have the ability to understand technology and utilize the way that Web3 works and can fact check more effectively themselves. They're going to, you are going to end up with a bifurcated culture if, if yeah. Web3 takes off in the way that some people think it might do, you are going yeah. to end up with one group of people speaking one type of language, having a, a, a group of uh, commonly held cultural assumptions, and then another group of people who have the old ones, the ones that have just been left behind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, th th it sounds kind of far-fetched, but the thing is, is, it's already happening. You know, it's already happening. It's, it's not something that we have to wait and see. Um, if you look at, for instance, the way that sort of schism has occurred between liberals and conservatives, um, the liberals are not Eloys, you know, they're not Eloys and, and the conservatives are not Morlocks, but 
the thing is, is that the liberals tend to get their information from the establishment because the establishment is liberal. And then the conservatives are obviously getting their um, information from alternative media because the alternative media is now mainly conservative or at least, you know, right leaning, might be libertarian. Um, so there's this kind of there's two separate sources of information now in the world. And these two groups are gradually diverging as they sort of become trapped in these in their own echo chambers. And they, you know, we saw it again, going back to the lab leak hypothesis. You know, you had the sort of the liberal establishment, which was firmly adamant that the lab leak hypothesis was a racist conspiracy theory. And then you had the the sort of right wing news media and the right wing sort of, you know, um, information environment, which was which which believed that, you know, it was it was not just a, a sort of leak from a lab so many of them believed it was a bioweapon and you know there was all these other crazy theories um, coming out of that of that situation so it's already beginning and i fear that the sort of if if web3 is not sort of homogenous if if it doesn't sort of draw everyone and become truly sort of egalitarian in, in, in its functionality then it's gonna sort of exacerbate these divisions because you're gonna have these big monolithic structures in Silicon Valley regulating Web2. Obviously, they will they will integrate Web3 functionality, but the very nature of Web3 means that Facebook is going to have very limited power in a fully Web3 environment. So they're going to try to retain their sort of power by limiting functionality. And people who are accustomed to using these big monolithic structures won't want to leave them. So they'll retain you know, they'll retain it. They will retain a large audience, even though there will be some people who will migrate to sort of, you know, mesh networks and, and the like. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very sort of precarious situation. And um, it, it, censorship is is not the way to to sort of um, try to get people to believe truth, because in the end, you know, all it's going to do is just going to make people reliant on others to tell them what's true, which in the long term is going to make them completely, you know, um, delusional. <laughs> Speaking so, of that so, one, Hitchin's razor. What can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. If you make a claim, it's up to you to prove it, not me to disprove it. Yeah. So um, this actually has a, a precursor. Um, in uh, it was, I mean, it's famously attributed to Hitchin's, uh, Christopher Hitchin's. You know, a lot of people love Christopher Hitchin's because he's a great speaker and he's, he's done a lot of great YouTube videos. And that's how most people get to know him. Um, but this was actually originally thought of by a guy called Bertrand Russell, who's a great philosopher who was around sort of in the first half of the 20th century. And um, he, his, he had a concept called Russell's teapot, which was basically that imagine there's a teapot um, which is sort of orbiting the moon right now. You can't prove that there is no teapot there, you know. And so because you can't prove that there's no teapot there, if the onus is on you to disprove it, then you have to believe in pretty much everything. You have to believe in Santa Claus because you can't disprove Santa Claus. You have to believe in Zeus. You have to believe in Poseidon. You have to believe in Shiva. You know, you have to believe in all these imaginary beings because you can't disprove their existence. So it, the only way that you can actually get through life um, is by assuming that what has been asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence because if you don't do that then you have to believe everything essentially so it's it's basically a, a sort of it's a system which ensures that your mind is occupied by the minimum amount of bullshit 
basically. It, it's a, it's a bull, bullshit filtering heuristic. That's the best way to think of it. So few it, people use this, though, because a lot of the time we have these assertions that occur online and people posit them as if you should accept the fact that they're there. And you're like, hang on a second. So here's a good example. I had a conversation with a buddy who did philosophy at Oxford Uni, and we were talking about ethics. And I'd never looked into ethics, not like proper philosophy uni type of ethics. And he said, you can have a conversation with somebody debating about ethics if you both agree on the meta-ethical framework that underpins it. But if you do not agree on the meta-ethics, then the conversation about ethics just falls apart because it's not grounded in anything that you can both agree on. It's like, look, are we playing rugby or are we playing football? Because we can debate about or we can play the game of rugby and football, but if I kick it and you pick it up, this is no longer the same game that we're playing. And exactly. yeah, this this is the same with the Hitchens Razor thing here. People post stuff online, presuming that you're supposed to, and then you say, "Well, hang on a second, like that's not right." And you go, "Everyone believes that this is right." What do you mean? What do you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, this is actually the essence of disagreement now on Twitter. Really, is that people don't are not actually disagreeing on facts or anything. They're actually disagreeing on frameworks by which they come to truth, and so. Um, yeah, this is this is why Hitchens Razor is so important because it's it's a short pithy thing that everybody should learn because you know all it's doing if you're if if you are expected to disprove what somebody else is saying all this is doing is wasting people's time because it means that I could come out with literally any claim it, you know there's no there's no filter to them there's no discrimination it's just like I could just come out with anything and then it's just going to waste people's time when they have to disprove it so it's a time saving device. And it, it's worked wonders for me because I just, you know, I think of the strength of the argument. If it's strong enough, I will engage with it. If it's not, if it doesn't actually have a strong enough evidence behind it, it's not worth my time. The other thing it does is it limits our own hubris about believing our own bullshit, right? Yeah. You say, look, hang on a second. Like, if I want to put something forward, I actually need to be able to back this up. And if I can't, then maybe I need to shut my shut my pie hole. Uh, right. Final, final couple, a couple of my sort of the ones that really intrigued me. Uh, focusing illusion. Nothing is ever as important as what you're thinking about while you're thinking about it. For example, worrying about a thing makes the thing being worried about seem worse than it is. As Marcus Aurelius observed, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. Yeah. So the mind works a lot like the eyes. Um, so the eyes can only focus on one thing at a certain time. They when you look at something, when you look at anything, you kind of have to focus on something or you have to just focus on nothing at all. You, you can't focus on everything at the same time. And the mind is exactly the same. Um, if you think about something, you have to think about, you have to focus on that thing. You can't, when you imagine a system, you have to focus on a certain aspect of that system. You can't imagine the entire system at once because it just your, your mind just doesn't work like that it works by picking out details and focusing on those details and the problem is is that when you focus on certain aspects of a system or a structure your mind uh, inflates the importance of that and so it basically can you know if you spend too long thinking about something then that thing because it grows in stature and it becomes something that eventually can become a, an obsession because you think it's so important. And I think this, this kind of can be seen in a way on, on Twitter. Um, 
you know, if you look at certain people who spend their lives, you know, um, with a single cause, you know, like one cause candidates of, of political um, parties or even just ordinary people who just have this one issue that they're really, really, really adamant about. What happens is that the more that they focus on it, the more important it gets. And so they spend even more time on it. And so it becomes it gradually just snowballs into this kind of obsession until they just become more and more extreme and more extreme. And you can see it with someone like Tommy, Tommy Robinson, for instance. Um, you know, he started off as a relatively well-rounded fellow, you know, and then gradually, you know, he had some valid concerns about um, Islamism in, in Burry Park. Um, and he decided to sort of devote his life to Islam, you know, to, to fighting it, to fighting Islamic Islamic extremism. But then what happened was that because he was spending so long thinking about it, it began to seem like the entire world to him. And so it, it sort of set off this threat response in his brain where he began to sort of, you know, feel this kind of feeling that it was a sort of, you know, it was encompassing him. It was it was basically uh, something that he had to defeat. And this this conviction of his got stronger and stronger the more he thought about this problem. And so eventually, you know, when he was on Twitter, you know, he was just posting never ending, just constant, just spewing out all this anti-Islamic stuff, you know, and it just gradually what it did is it just kind of made him, it was like a kind of self-reinforcing. Became um, his own caricature, right? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. He became a character of, of himself. And the reason that that happened was essentially because of the focusing illusion, because he was focusing on Islam at the expense of all the surrounding context, you know, anything else, it was just literally just Islam, 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 Islam. And as a result of that, he became, he just became obsessed. And it happens with everyone. It's not just, you know, with people like Tommy Robinson. This is something that happens with pretty much everybody. I mean, it's happened to me, you know, sometimes if I've thought about a certain thing, it kind of links in with the golden hammer in a sense. Because if somebody's written a book about a certain concept, they're going to be thinking about that concept all the time. And that concept is going to seem more important to them than it actually is. And so you're going to get people like Taleb who are going to see things in the world and they're going to think, oh, OK, this is this is explained by anti-fragility or this is explained by the Lindy effect or black swans or you know, all these other concepts that he has. It's, it's because the mind is incapable of seeing a system as a whole. It tends to just see the constituent parts and it tends to focus on those particular parts. And as a result of that, you know, you can become blinded essentially by what you focus on. Right. Last one. Dunning-Kruger effect. Awareness of the limitations of cognition, thinking, requires proficiency in metacognition, thinking about thinking. In other words, being stupid makes you too stupid to realize how stupid you are. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this one's is quite self-explanatory, but I think I'll try to expound upon it. Um, so I think really this is kind of the main obstacle to people educating themselves and becoming more intelligent. because you can only remedy something if you see the problem, if you actually know what the problem is. But the problem with human minds is that they're incapable of really comprehending themselves. Nobody really understands the, their own limitations. You can't, because you can't step outside yourself. You know, we, we, we are we're sort of locked inside our skulls. And that's what, you know, we have a very limited perspective. We can see the outside world relatively well, but we can't see how we are ourselves we can't see our own flaws very well we can't see the limitations of our thinking very well and as a result of that we we often there's a sort of correlation between how um 
unintelligent you are and how ignorant of your own unintelligence you are. So, you know, pe people sort of who are very ignorant are obviously going to be ignorant of themselves. And so they're going to be ignorant of their own stupidity and their own ignorance. And so it's very hard to remedy that, you know, because what, what exactly are you supposed to do? If somebody can't recognize their own ignorance, then you can't really remedy it. It's, it's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a sort of sticky situation that people are, are sort of in. So, I mean, one of the ways that you can try to rect rectify it is by educating people about the Dunning-Kruger effect, by actually telling people, look, everybody is ignorant to a certain extent. And the degree to which you're ignorant limits how aware of your ignorance you are. How so, do you think the Dunning-Kruger effect relates to the midwit meme? Um, I think it, it probably does explain it to a certain extent. I think um, when people are kind of, uh, you know, when they are not really aware of their own flaws, they will just tend to just not bother trying to uh, seek anything out of their own comfort zone. They won't, you know, they won't really, uh, they won't try to find, if you think that what you believe, if you think that what you believe is right, then you're not going to try to correct it. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? So these people are just going to carry on believing what they already believe. They're just going to just sort of, you know, um, they're not going to bother trying to remedy it because they're, they're not even aware that there's even a problem. So this, I think, is, is the, the, the crucial sort of uh, element of, of midwits and, and not just the midwits, but of everybody, really. I think everybody has this problem. This is not, you know, this is not something that anybody is immune to. And we're all we're all guilty of it. And, you know, I myself am ignorant about my own ignorance. There's a lot of things that, that I don't know about myself that I'm ignorant of. So it's something that we all have to contend with. You know, this is uh, and this is the problem. But I think I think that this is something that we can only really remedy um, by making people aware of the Dunning-Kruger effect itself and also by making people aware of cognitive biases. Because when you when you're aware of the way that your brain is working, then you can sort of um, you can take steps to to remedy it. And I'll give you an example of how you do this. Um, let's say that you are an employer and you are going to hire one of two people, uh, person A and person B. And let's say person A and person B have got the exact same qualifications um, and they have pretty much, they're pretty much exactly the same in terms of what their work history is and all that kind of stuff. One of them is physically attractive and one of them is not. So who would you hire in that situation? A lot of people would probably say, oh, we, I would hire the, the physically attractive person, but that's actually wrong. You, you should actually hire the physically unattractive person because the physically unattractive person has managed to get where they have gotten despite having the ugliness, the unattractiveness. So you're basically second guessing your own bias. You know, you're basically saying, you're basically saying okay, so there is actually a bias at work here. And that person has overcome that bias. So they must be more competent than the attractive person. So you can do it through these little sort of thought experiments like that. You know, you can try to teach people to be aware of their own biases, which can go some way to remedy the Dunning-Kruger effect. But you'll never be able to completely, um, you know, be aware of every problem that you have in your own thinking because it's just thinking just doesn't work that way. Matt, we'll just hold our hands up and, and allow ourselves to be carried away by a tidal wave of nihilism. Look, dude, we made it. Thank you so much for coming on today. What should people do if they enjoyed this and want to check out more of your stuff? Where should they go? Yeah, so um, the best way to keep in touch with me is on Twitter. So uh, you can follow me at um, 
G underscore S underscore Bogle. That's B-H-O-G-A-L. Um, and I've also got a substack on the horizon, which I'm going to be opening soon. I'm going to be exploring a lot of these concepts in more detail in essay form, which is, you know, it's only a couple of weeks away now. So uh, that's something that I'll be doing soon as well. And yeah, hopefully uh, I'll be able to uh, increase the understanding of these concepts. Sick, man. Well, just write some more threads and then we can do some more episodes. That's what I want. Well, yeah, more, yeah, more threads will be coming as well. Yeah, this is something I'm going to start doing semi-regularly. So uh, yeah, I think I'll probably try and get another thread out for the end of the year and then uh, we'll see what goes from there. Good man. Catch you later on, dude. Cheers. Thanks, Chris.